which is 77 groups of uh, 77 words in 20 groups um, to describe different sensations of pain. Standing outside Cabinet Gallery here in Vauxhall, coming to visit the Antonin Artaud exhibition, the first exhibition of his works in, in England. Working class it suffered from. So, you know, he was sent off to various sanatoriums. Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this edition, I look at illness and the creative process, meeting with author of Constellations, Sinead Gleeson. We spoke about determination, empowerment and the problem of acknowledging female genius within society. Yes, it still is a major problem. I also spoke with the curator of a recent exhibition at Cabinet Gallery, Martin McKeown about Dada artist Antonin Artaud's mental illness and the work he created. Amazing work it is at that. Um, so yeah, brilliant stuff coming up. But first, uh, let's have a look at a few titles that have caught the eye in Liberia over the last few weeks. Gingerbread by Helen Oyeyemi. It's fair to say that this, you know, a fairy tale story seems like as good a genre as any to make sense of our very complicated world. And Oyeyemi is brilliant on this. I mean, she really dismantles the fairy tale idea or the fairy tale ideal and gets you to look at our world in a different way. Philosopher of the Heart, The Restless Life of Soren Kierkegaard by Claire Carlyle is another book that I, I really can't wait to read myself. I'm just going to quote from it actually because it really is that good. If Socrates was the master of irony, Kierkegaard has been his apprentice. In his dissertation he wrote that no genuine human life is possible without irony. For each human soul yearns restlessly for truth, longs to know the sources of its life, and feels this longing as its deepest need, its joy and pain. I mean, that's absolutely wonderful. Um, and I just, I just opened it up and, and, and found that in you know, my first reading in the book. So, yeah, she's really brilliant. You're, you know, she is also at King's College London, so you're, you're really in scholarly hands there, no doubt about it. And it's really important like, to put a, a philosopher like Kierkegaard into a historical context. That's the important thing about this sort of biography. It puts his learning and his knowledge into context as well. The last book uh, for this podcast that I, I'm recommending is last for a very good reason because it's probably one of the most important books, I think, on physics that I, I, I can recommend at the moment. Einstein's Unfinished Revolution by Lee Smolin. Now, Lee Smolin wrote a book a few years ago called Time Reborn. It is one of my favorite books um, on physics and the idea of time. Even if you're not... Uh, an astrophysicist, which I certainly am not, you know, this, this, this is worth reading. Um, you know, philosophically, it's mind-blowing. I, I really want to interview this guy for the podcast. He is, if there is genius, if I, and I use that word lightly, it's, it's got to be Lee Smolin. I, I had the wonderful opportunity of interviewing his colleague, Carlo Ravelli, uh, a couple of years ago. An amazing individual. Uh, they both worked together on loop quantum gravity. So just get Time Reborn, read it, and let me know what you think, because it'll blow your mind. on that further i mean it's you're experimenting with form in this book as well and i and i suppose maybe three quarters of the way through you 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 your language turns because i think you find yourself you're back in a hospital and it for me you move towards uh, you start you know you're thinking about uh, foucault 
Yeah. You're thinking about the person's uh, a clinic. Yeah, yeah. Susan Sontag, uh, Anne Carson's as well, which is quite beautiful passage. But there is there's an uh, you're asserting yourself a little bit more. You're asserting yourself in terms of language, the discourse. You are taking that back, aren't you? You're 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 kind of owning it, and it's quite extraordinary. It's it's, it's beautiful that shift. It's very it's but it's you interrogating. It's not the institutions interrogating you as an individual. Is is that a fair enough uh, kind of um, observation? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I and I specifically one of the pieces. Uh, it's it's probably one of the more experimental pieces. And people say, oh, it's a, it looks like twenty poems. There may be twenty micro essays mm-hmm. or twenty prose musings, if you like. It's it's based on the McGill Pain Index, which was came up come up within the seventies by a doctor in Canada, which is seventy seven groups of uh, seventy seven words in twenty groups mm-hmm. um, to describe different sensations mm-hmm. of pain. And my interest in that was not just in the words. So I made twenty different stories out of twenty medical experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my interest in that is that the, so the words for pain have obviously been decided by doctors and by yes. people who haven't necessarily yes. been have experienced pain. So so the language of, of describing pain and, and also pain can be often a very, you know, it's very hard to articulate sometimes. Yes. Sometimes there aren't actually the right words or the word that you mean. It doesn't feel hot and it doesn't mm-hmm. feel dull and it doesn't feel searing. And I don't know what that word is. And I'm interested. I mean, I have a medical dictionary at home that like nerdily I just like to, you know, drop into every mm-hmm. so often. And I think there's a kind of real... Even, you know, the words that the way we, we in, in modern day life, no one goes around using the medical words for, for parts of their body. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested in that. We don't we, we kind of euphemize them. Yes. Um, and I like all the big medical words. It has a musicality all of its own yeah, medical yeah, yeah, language. Yeah. And I, I do really like it. But I think in that piece, um, I, I, I wanted to sort of talk about I, I again. It's me resisting the idea that a memoir starts at the start and ends at the end mm. and it has a load of chapters. Mm. And I didn't want to write a book like that. I didn't want a book that physically looks mm. like mm. that. So mm. that, therefore, there are things that look like poems. The longest essay in blood is divided into the eight blood and rhesus groups. Um, and I wanted to be a little bit playful with that. It also allows you, allows you to change tack and jump around yes, uh, yes. rather than getting into a, a longer narrative, especially when some of this material is often technical, sometimes yeah. a little bit bloody. Um, sometimes a lot of people have been spending a lot of time crying reading this book, yes. I've been told. Yeah. Um, so if it's so people maybe want a breaker. And I, I found that a lot of people have responded to the the. the uh, messing around with form they kind of it's as you probably know people respond to different parts of the book it's i'm always really keen to hear what they do respond to but it, it could never have been written in a straightforward 12 essays they're all mm-hmm. four thousand words and they all look the same i wasn't interested in that mm. no no it is it's totally it, it, it's so powerful and it moves on so beautifully and i love those uh, ruptures if, if you yeah, want to call great. those kind of little changes we can move on to the next kind of area that i, I of interest for me at least anyway um, the the many artists you're you you know you're mm. passionate about and you're interested in Frida Kahlo, uh, Joe Spence, Tracy Emin, Barbara Hethworth. I mean, these are amazing individuals, aren't they? Yeah. In terms of they're 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 also all all of them are quite visual, aren't they? Like yeah, I think so. And it, it's a couple of people have said to me that they've read the book and had to have a pen handy because they were mm-hmm. jotting down people they wanted to look up. Carlos um, uh, obviously seem, seem, maybe seems like an obvious one to, to a lot of people, but Carlos in, in an essay with two other um, another artist, Joe Spencer, you mentioned. I know you're mm. a fan. She's a photographer. Love, uh, I love. And I, she's I well. Mean, you, as I just said, you'll be incredible. delighted to hear. There's yeah. a new exhibition opening in the in the Welcome here in London in May of her work, and she is so just exciting. she's she's brilliant, not just as somebody who, who at capturing the body and capturing her own medical mm. diagnoses and breast cancer and illnesses, but very subversive. Reminds me a lot of Cindy Sherman in terms of That's how she right. messes around Absolutely. with femininity and what it is to be a woman. Yeah. 
um, and also was a working class woman and she calls mm. refers to herself not as an artist but as a cultural sniper which That's, I think is a brilliant yeah, way to describe yourself I wish I thought of that yeah yeah um, and I didn't know that yeah, either yeah. yeah no she's she's just I think she's just incredible but I, I so I picked I united sort of Frida Joe Spence and a writer called Lucy Greeley who was Irish mm. in one piece because when I was growing up and as I went through these various health experiences I didn't see people representing the experiences as I as mine with obviously none of their experiences are the same as mine but I didn't see somebody articulating pain or illness or uh, the self-consciousness that you feel when something physical happens to your body the not being able to get get out of bed and the way Carlo was really in terms of her face the uh, horrible experiences with doctors who talk over you and talk around you and pretend you're not there that Joe Spence, Joe Spence. does very very well um so all three of those uh uh, writers and artists for me were people who articulated what I was trying to articulate and I found Callow very young in my teens uh, Greeley was a bit older and then Joe Spence was only a few years ago when there was a big exhibition on in a gallery in Cork and I thought how have I never heard of this person yeah. she also died of leukemia uh, yeah. and I have written about my own experience of leukemia in the book so you find these weird connections but they felt like as I, as I say they felt like a kind of a, a triptych for me these three yes. really important women who were saying who were not they didn't become victims of their illnesses. They made art out of their illnesses. And that is to kind of rise above it. And that is to make something out of your pain, which is, I suppose, a little bit of what I do in parts of, of this book. And that's why I wrote about the three of them. But yeah, go go and see Joe Spence if you've never oh, seen her work. Uh, yeah, and read Lucy Greeley. Absolutely, yeah. 100%. Moving on to Ireland and, 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 and then the whole pro-choice and, the, I mean, massive celebrations mm. in... Uh, uh, last year on that but um, I thought it was interesting you know when you're writing about that in relation to you know the female voice and empowerment etc mm. et it's, 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 it's crucial to this whole debate that's going on in Ireland in terms of like how, how we think about it. but, I, I, but I, I was so surprised when you're, you were talking about article 41 in our constitution it's still written even though we've amended this yeah. massive yeah. They were going to medieval build, yeah. shall we I mean not even I, I hate to, I love medieval history, but I mean, this is, I mean, we've, we've gotten over this yeah. to a certain extent, and but it's still written into our constitution in terms of, and I, I like, I didn't know about this until I read your book. You Did know? you not? Okay. No. Every woman in Ireland knows this, you see, because, and it came up again a lot during the, the abortion referendum, which is, uh, you know, the article states that the woman's uh, place is in the, basically the woman's place is in the home and that by her her labour, that the labour she gives to the home and the Irish family life is supporting her husband and raising children and keeping the home going. Um, and it's still in the constitution. There was going to be a referendum about it very soon, but it's been put on the, the back foot, I think. We're all very distracted. Bre yeah. Brexit notwithstanding, yeah. Yeah. Um, which will have a huge impact on Ireland. And uh, I, I think it's the fact that that's there seems when we've moved past that in terms of, you know, so two women can marry each other, a woman can have an abortion of 12 weeks, but you're still being told in the constitution that your place is in the home. So there's still lots of relics of those and, things. And, and they are relics. That's what they, they are. are. They are relics. Yeah. But it's, it's again, it's the power of the written word, isn't it? And the, yeah. the, 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 the constraints that, it, it, you yeah. know, the, it, it's like Gulliver being tied down, you know, it's like, yeah. and, and we have that and it's, as you say, you know, it's it's used against women. You know, it's that so, it's almost like a silent sort of yeah. thing in the background, but it's still there. And, yeah. we, and we need to, we need, we really need to get rid we, of it. We, we do. Stuff. And when people talk, I mean, for for years, I find it so. I've been talking to people about 
feminism for a long, long time. Mm. And, and to men mm. about it, and it's been really interesting to see, for me particularly, the amount of men who have changed their mind, who would have been quite scoffy mm. and blokey, mm. like all oh, great people, you mm. know, men who bought records and read the books lads. and are cool guys, yeah. but still have like, you know, unfortunate views on women. And yeah. I've seen a lot of those men, particularly as those men became fathers and had daughters, yeah. um, change their, their minds on what it was. And it all is, it's like, don't we want everybody to be able to do what they want to do, you know, within reason and with mm. consent and mm. all of those mm. things and to just be the best person they can ever be. So mm. can you can you imagine that in this land for a long time that all these things happen to women yeah. just by virtue of the fact that they were female and born female and that's that's what it was so it's, it's so when people say oh there's no discrimination everything's the same it's like no no if you're being actively discriminated against because you are female and then you became somebody's wife and then you can't have your civil service job or you can't have and again it's the you know the famous Gloria Steinem line about uh, abortion which was you know if men could get pregnant abortion would be a sacrament uh, in relation to Catholicism and that's that's it, it wouldn't yeah. have interfered with the lives of men businessmen yeah. CEOs politicians that's wouldn't right. have had their lives impacted by unwanted pregnancies if they didn't that's want right. to but because it happened to women um, it absolutely was just not something that was a priority for a long time. And you talk about that, you know, in relation even to, you know, if there's panel dis discussions, literary yeah. panel discussions, it's yeah. like, oh, how do you survive as an artist? You know, um, yeah. what about the kids? You know, I who did, looks after the kids? Well, I, did an, I did an event the other night with Maeve Higgins, the comedian and writer, and she was jokingly saying to me before, because I'm going to ask you, how do you juggle, juggle everything? I was like, <laughs> I know you are. So she did, and we just had a big laugh about it, because I go on about that an awful yeah, lot. Like, yeah. no, one, no one has ever said to, you know, uh, uh, Roddy Doyle, as lovely as Roddy yeah. is, you know, who minds your kids while yeah, you write your books? Yeah. No, nobody asks yeah, them that, yeah. but women are, uh, you know, have to offer up that it's kind very of very tiring, isn't it? Ah, it's just really, it's just like, yeah. ask a different question, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. just a bit lame. Yeah. And also, Siri Hustvedt, the, the, the novelist, yeah. actually, uh, writing in The Guardian, she was brilliant last week. I don't know if you saw She's the She's a great article. book of essays as well. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Um, she was talking about, it's, it's fascinating, actually, and I, again, I didn't, I didn't, I did not know this, but uh, Marcel Duchamp, she was talking about a female artist who... who I, I have he, this piece bookmarked and I haven't read it yet. <laughs> he, stole, he stole the artwork off her, you know. No, and get it. A man taking credit for woman's work, get out of here. <laughs> I mean, what are you saying? It, it was just, it, I mean, wow, you know, and it's... But it, but it, 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 it's, it brings to mind the whole idea of genius, you know, which is yeah. a male thing, isn't it? Like, yeah. the, I mean, I st thinking about it after reading her article... I cannot think of uh, one, or, uh, like Tracy Emin. She's yeah. a genius to yeah. me, yeah. but she's not a genius in the public eye, is she? No, and I remember having a conversation with a guy who was, who was a, an artist years ago who was like, you know, name me one great famous female paint, painter from history. And I was like, you know, I named off the, the few I knew. This is 20 years yeah. ago. And now there's a Twitter account called uh, Women's Art, and every single day they tweet literally Hundreds. There's probably Amazing. fifty tweets a day. So in the in the course of a week, there's hundred tweets, and every single one is a different. And it goes all it goes. To, it, it's all over the world. It's, you know, it, you know, Egyptian Amazing. Egyptian uh, ceramicists from the eighth century right up to like twentieth century fauvist. And wow. it's really it, it's because again the, the the default. And I've said this before about writing. When people say writer, mm. they they mean man because mm. there isn't a kind of there's there's you know there's female writers or women's writing and women's writing prizes. There's no man writing prize mm. or male writer. No one ever says that. And it's the same with art. And it's the same with a, a lot of other things that the default, the authoritative voice, um, the the example yeah. is male and not female. And that's happened art writing loads of other areas. So. Well, Sinead Gleeson, you're well on your way to changing that whole thing. And thank you so much for coming into the Liberia podcast. Great Hi. to meet you. Great to meet you. And thanks for having me. Is she not amazing? Super to talk to Sinead Gleeson on such wide ranging topics. 
Uh, and her book really demonstrates how sheer determination overcomes illness and hardship. And, you know, she's seen quite a lot. And I guess that's where that's where brilliant art comes from in, in a lot of ways. Related to this, I chatted with curator Martin McKeown of Cabinet Gallery. We discussed the torturous mental illness of early 20th century avant-garde artist Antonin Artaud. Fascinating, fascinating individual. Curator, co-director of Cabinet Gallery, uh, Martin McKeown. Um and Martin, I, I think just to start off with, um, just wanted to talk about this recent exhibition that you've co-curated, uh, Antonin Arcto, twentieth um, century artist, but also avant-garde theatre director, playwright as well. And I just wanted to talk about. The artist, in re- specifically, to start with, in relation to um, the exhibition and his notebooks and his drawings, mm-hmm. he, he he suffered a lot throughout his life um, in regards to mental health. I wonder, could you talk about that um, um, a little bit? Yeah, I mean, uh, during his youth, you know, adolescence, you know, he was kind of diagnosed with. Yeah, I mean, when I say diagnosed, they were uh, conditions which are now kind of medically questioned whether they really mm. existed or not as conditions, certain sorts of nervous disorders, mm. which, you know, um, paradoxically only really afflicted the upper middle classes, you know, or something mm. that was recorded as something that the working classes suffered from. So, you know, he was sent off to sa- various sanatoriums mm. during his youth. Okay. Um, um, Highly strong, maybe mm. this would be a term you might use for mm. or something like that. But um, and then I know you know when it was reported or recorded that you know, during these during some of these sort of treatments he was given um, administered or prescribed drugs. Okay, you know laudanum. Um, yeah. uh, that's what I can understand. Laudanum. It might have been cocaine as well, um, opium. Mm-hmm. You know things that were kind of commonly used yeah. in those times to kind of you know, to to alleviate some, you know, imagined or real afflictions. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> he became addicted. No, he's been, he was a heroin addict all his life. So addicted at an early stage or an early age? As far as I know, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a, you know he, was, he was kind of chasing drugs for a lot of his life. You know, okay. he, he, even in the early, early texts that he wrote for um, Second Surrealist Manifesto, you know, he was call, calling for, like, uh, you know, the, the legalisation of opium and widespread availability of drugs. Um, Did this go hand in hand with its creative capacity or its creative output, would you say? No, I don't really think so. Did did he start, did he endeavour to to pursue a creative path before? No, I think he was, you know, no, I think he was, uh, you know, I think he was probably already kind of destined to, you know, Mm. uh, he was interested in writing and drawing, and there's only there's only kind of adolescent examples of this, you know. <laughs> so you know, I think that you know of a certain kind of inclination. He was quite typical of a teenager, maybe in those, in those years in Europe. You know, okay. um, I think the drugs thing was um, probably you know. I think it's kind of difficult when you talk about drugs now. You see it, you know, in a, you know it's kind of perceived in a very different way than it was then. I think it was yeah. something that was, you know, possibly even encouraged, you know. Okay. You know, and not as criminalised as it is now. So 
you know, it wouldn't have been a sort of necessarily a social embarrassment to have sort of spoken about your addiction or your needs, you know, in the same way as it is now, or, you know, it was a different thing because it was sort of considered almost a medical innovation. Okay. You know. Um, so I don't think I, I wouldn't I wouldn't make too big a deal of the sort of impact of one or the other. I think it's true to say that in later life he came to see his need for opium uh, or heroin as um, something more to do with something more fundamental about his being. You know, he kind of rationalised it in different kind of ways, or as something essential to him, a bit like. Uh, um, Music might be to someone uh-huh. else, you know, or, or something like this. No, so it's like essential to his psychological and spiritual well-being, you know. Okay. Um, and of course, you know, he also you know, went off and explored the cultural dimension of drugs by going to Mexico and participating in peyote rites uh-huh. and this kind of thing. So, it, you know, he was um, he. I think he saw the role of this in his own life and in, in, in creativity in general. But I don't think it's not, you know, I don't think it's uh, something that kind of drove his mm. practice, you know. But, but feeds into it, in, in many ways. Like the experience, into, yeah, the experience. Maybe, yeah, like, I think he, he starts to sort of think about the sociological, you know, kind of, you know, no, like why are drugs withheld, you know? Why are they administered? Why do you have to get certain dosages? And you know, like, I mean, in some ways, it's like a typical kind of, you know, you know, when you come across his letters or his writings on this, it's like it's very typical of an addict, you know, mm-hmm. rationalizing why you can't have more. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, I would say that yeah, there's a kind of you know thinking about drugs that is sort of perhaps related to the way. Burroughs might like to think about it, but mm. I don't think he was using it in some kind. He's not exploring his condition mm. under the influence mm. or anything like that. Mm. I would not like Michaud and and uh, and, uh, and um, but he's he's exploring his his mental condition. He's exploring his well. I mean, it's expressive in his work, isn't it? His... I think he takes it as a concrete reality. I don't think he's exploring it. So okay. I think he's just um, reflecting it. Um, uh, I don't think he's reflecting. I think he's manifesting who, what he is. Okay. You know. Interesting. You know. Yeah. So there isn't because representation is a big problem when it comes to Otto. Um, it's something he, for him that is anathema. So there's everything in him is always trying to close this gap between, mm. you know, um, uh, experience and representation. You know. Okay. Representation of experience is for him like something that's like problematic. Okay, so the, it, it's almost like it, it's almost he he wants to separate the the kind of the experiential from the actual the work no, itself wants, is autonomous. No, the opposite. He okay. wants to collapse them into one space. Great. Okay. So there's no, Fascinating. There's, yeah. you know, there's no space between them. So, for instance, in theatre, you know, this is why he wanted to kind of eradicate the notion of text. You know, okay. there wouldn't be a sort of script. Not because he's interested in improvisation. I mean, mm. There was nothing mm. to do with that. It was to do with like then acting is just a representation of the script. Mm. You know, he wanted acting to be sort of almost like. I mean, there's contradictions in his description of acting mm. because there's also this, uh, 
you know, he kind of likes the frame of the proscenium arch, but then sometimes he's also sees, you know, he talks about like something which you could imagine being in the round, you know. Okay. But for him, he sees you know, gesture and, and and posture and movement as a kind of script. Okay. Yeah. A concrete, not a representation. Physical. Concrete. Yeah. yeah. Like presence, which is the thing itself. Okay. So in that sense, quite modernist. He wants it to be the thing itself, you know, in the same way Greenberg might write about a painting. It's not a painting of something, it's a painting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it doesn't represent anything except itself. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily even the repository of certain sorts of, you know, inexpressed or unexpressible dimensions of the artist. It's not even that, you know. In fact, the artist can't even claim responsibility for it on a certain level, you know. It's a thing. Mm-hmm. It exists in the world... Just as, uh, just in just as real a way as any other thing. Okay. Great to speak with both of my guests today, Sinead Gleeson and Martin McKeown. Do check out secondhome.io for full cultural program listings. Lots of exciting stuff coming up. See you next time.